0: Good morning, good morning, it's good to see you here again, good to be, it's our fourth week now, we've been doing this live and in person and and, uh, it's been really life-giving. Love this weather, I love this weather, it makes me feel alive, sorry Raf and Kerry, I know you you hate the cold, we can never be happy at the same time, (laughs) you and I, Um, but yeah, I love this weather, it makes me feel alive and I think... Something else that makes me feel alive is the fact that in the last four weeks, I feel like we've crammed a a year and a half of human interaction into the last four weeks, and so that's been really good. So I I think Lydia, you were saying it was—you were sort of everyone's a bit tired now because of that, but it's a good tired, right? It's a good tired. Well, we're in our fourth um, session in Colossians, and uh, it's in chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there, and I'm going to read from verse 15. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, At a probably a couple of years before we moved to New York City, I was attending a, a philosophy conference here in the city, and, and the majority of people attending were either atheists or agnostics. And I remember the first person who got up to speak was a professor from Yale, and he said that we want to live in community. And he said, but in order to have community, you have to have sacrifice, But in order to have sacrifice you have to have love and and this this sounds right to me I don't think we can have a healthy community unless we're all willing to sacrifice a little bit Uh, but then I don't think we'll sacrifice unless there's love for each other we sacrifice for that which we love and those whom we love And, and so in order to have community you need sacrifice in order to have sacrifice you need love but then he said an interesting thing in order to have love you need a text you need a text. By that he means you need a framework. You need a legitimating narrative, a compelling story that would compel us to live in community, love, and sacrifice. Well, up until that point, he sounded very much like, well, the Apostle Paul. Because the, the Apostle Paul, over the last few weeks, has been calling us to live lives of, of, in, together in community of grace and peace and sacrifice and fruitfulness, grace and peace, sacrifice and fruitfulness. These are the themes that have been coming up over the last three weeks. Paul's calling us to that kind of life together. So he sounds like Paul. But then he said something interesting. He said, but we, referring to himself and, and the broader culture, we have withdrawn from the metaphysical debate. And, and by that is one way of saying we're not going to talk about God any, anymore. So after that first session, I was sat around a, a, a conversation discussion table and um, People just making various comments and and I just made this I think rather pedestrian observation. I said um, surely things like community sacrifice and love are rooted in some very profound metaphysical commitments and, and here, here's here's what I mean by that if we're going to call people to community of, of community sacrifice and love then this assumes that there is a goal for humanity, that humanity itself is actually aimed at something. If we're going to call people into community, sacrifice and love, uh, it takes for granted that there is an, this, this world is ordered to something. If we're going to call people to community, sacrifice and love, it just assumes, it just presumes on the fact that there is a unity that binds everything together and relates one thing to another in some meaningful way. All of these on the outer circle, these are metaphysical commitments in which our values on the inner circle are rooted and to remove to remove ourselves from the metaphysical debate, to remove that outer circle, to stop talking about God, is ultimately to say, there is no goal for human life. It's not aimed at anything. This world isn't ordered to anything. And there is no serious unity that binds things together and and relates one thing to another in any meaningful or significant way. Well, I make this rather, I think, straightforward observation And the person sitting next to me, he looks at me incredulously, and he says, are you you trying to be biblical? Um, And by the way, I know in some contexts that's a compliment. Oh, he's so biblical. But but, uh, in that context, it was not a compliment. It was an insult. And what he's essentially saying is, are you a total fundamentalist? Or, or let me translate that again. He's saying, are you completely stupid? You know, this is, this is what he was actually asking. And so this is the first session of the first day of this several days conference. I'm already being labeled a foaming at the mouth fundamentalist. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a fun few days. Um, but the irony in, in him saying that is that actually I was actually making, I wasn't being a fundamentalist or even being biblical in that sense. I was making the, the, the uh, comment that uh, the atheist philosopher Jacques Derrida makes when he says, some people talk about stepping outside metaphysics as if it were child's play. (laughs) And his point is, don't be so naive. It's just not that simple. Because the moment you eliminate this outer circle, what we might call our metaphysical commitments, which are summed up for us as Christians in God, then it becomes very difficult, near impossible, to talk about these in a legitimate way, the values. I hope that diagram uh, helps a a little bit. What we find here this morning in this wonderful passage in Colossians what we find is that Paul is making sure that he's not like one of those guys at the conference, and he wasn't the only one. There are plenty of people at the conference who were saying the same thing. He wants to make sure he's not like one of those people at the conference who's telling us we need to live lives in community, sacrifice, and love, but without telling us a compelling story which would make sense of that kind of life. Paul knows the importance of not just telling people this is how you should live, but telling us a story out of which out of which it would just be the most natural, normal thing in the world for us to live in that direction. He's telling the story in in which it would just be the most normal thing in the world for us to live in that direction. And that kind of life would just arise naturally out of that story. Now look. This is really, really important, uh, and, and so I, I think uh, I want to give a couple of examples of what happens when these things aren't integrated, right? Our, our values, our rules, or whatever you want to call it, are not integrated with uh, the with with story and bound up tightly together, um, and I'm going to give you an example of what it looks like from outside the church, and then I'm going to give you an example of what it looks like from inso- inside the church, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll start to feel why this is an important part of what we're doing here at Trinity Heights, working hard to try and integrate the, the rules of the values with a story uh, and and making sure that they're tightly bound up together so a a view from outside the church a view from outside the church is, is is this growing chasm and it's grown more in the last five years since we planted Trinity Heights five years ago, and the chasm is growing between the church and the broader culture, and one of the reasons, one of the major reasons that has happened is because of this insistence on telling people rules, and these are the values, and these are how you should live, you should live like this, you ought to believe this, these are the values you should have, these are the rules, these are the regulations, but we haven't been very good storytellers. In fact, we've ter- we haven't been terrible. We have been telling the story in which those kinds of rules uh, would, would make any kind of sense. Right? And so, so what ends up happening is New York City looks at the church in the same way that guy was looking at me. You're completely stupid. Right? This, this, is, this is kind of the perspective that it, that creates. So that, that's a perspective from outside the church, and this is why it's really important to pull these things together. Here's our values, and, and here's the story in which these values make sense. Okay, a view from inside the church. What I've found when these things are divorced, when we keep on talking about rules and commands and regulations, and, and we don't really, we're not very good storytellers, Here's, here's what happens. It produces these very rigid kind of people. And these people come up with all sorts of rules and regulations, and they come up with more rules to make sure you're following those first set of rules properly, right? Rules for the rules. And what, they, what you'll find is sometimes they're the most vocal people on a particular um, moral issue, their pet moral issue. They're very vocal, very loud about it. And uh, what what you'll also find is is that they try to impose these rules not just on themselves, but on everyone else around them. But this makes sense, you know, because if I'm going to be miserable, you should be miserable too. So, misery loves companies, so come join me. So, we we impose these rules on themselves and everyone around them, reinforcing them quite rigidly. But then, what happens? What happens is life is what happens. Life is what happens. And they find themselves crushed. Life comes undone, and they find themselves crushed under the weight of their own rules and and crushed under the weight of their own failure to follow their own rules. And what happens is they walk away from the Christian narrative, they walk away from Christian faith, they walk away from the church. They just walk away. And and there's plenty of of, of sort of, I'll give you one example Um, right now. There's uh, a guy, some of you will have heard of him. His name is Joshua Harris. And this is very public, so he's doing this publicly, so we can talk about this publicly. Um, Joshua Harris uh, wrote a book about 20 years ago called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and it was a set of very rigid rules. This is how relationships need to be managed. This is, how you, this is the fra- rigid framework in which you should approach relationships and dating or not as the case may be. Um, and apparently, I've talked to two or three of you this week have told me that that was practically uh, sort of a compulsory reading for, for you in a sort of youth group or, or church, for those of you who grew up, some of you grew up in the church. Um, and that was compulsory reading. Every, everyone had to, to, to read this book. Well, what happens is uh, a couple of decades later, so just recently, uh, Joshua Harris has ditched his wife and he's ditched the church as well and his Christian faith. But of course, of course, there's no surprise there. Um, this is what this kind of rigidity produces. This is what happens when we give rules and values without being I mean, just terrible storytellers. And look, me wrong, I'm not ragging on on Joshua Harris. I'm I'm ragging on the system that produces a Joshua Harris. Produces someone who feels they've got to sort of white knuckle it and grit their teeth and go, oh, I'm gonna get through this. It's always compelling until it's not. Well, Paul is not doing that. Paul is offering a compelling narrative in that passage I just read. Uh, and so over the next three weeks, what I want to do this week and the next Two weeks. I want to look at these three strands of this narrative that are woven very tightly together. Okay, so we've got to unpick it a little bit. Three strands of this narrative that are woven tightly together to form this this very compelling narrative. Um, and those three strands are first of all a theology of providence, the providence of God, a theology of creation, and a theology of humanity. So providence, creation, humanity. Providence creation, humanity. And we're gonna see how these three strands woven together form a compelling narrative in which lives of grace and peace and the pursuit of sacrifice and and human flourishing and fruitfulness makes sense. So in the time that remains, I want to look at providence this week. And I'm gonna start with a few dictionary definitions of providence. This is sort of the classic Toastmasters style, isn't it? You know, a lot of uh, you go to a wedding and uh, marriage. The, uh, the 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 defini- dictionary definition of marriage is so, but sometimes it's a good place to start. And, and I'm going to start there this morning with with this theme. So, this is a Cambridge Dictionary it says, providence an influence that is not human in origin and is thought to control people's lives. Spooky. Uh, Providence is God or a force which is believed by some people to arrange the things that happen to us. I I like that. Arrange the things that happen to us. Providence is belief in God or a force that some people believe controls our lives and the things that happen to us. So those are three dictionary definitions I pulled up uh, the other day. And so there you have it. And now you know. Let us pray. Actually, I can't leave it there, and, and you know why. Is because while this is the popular version of the providence of God, this is the folksy, folk version of the providence of God. This is not actually what Paul is talking about here in, in Colossians. This, is the, Paul, this, is, this doesn't get at the heart of what Paul means by the providence of God or, or the, the theology that he's building up in this passage, which we call the providence of God. Um, you know, one of the harshest critics of, of this sort of approach to the providence of God it doesn't actually come from a, a Christian theologian. It doesn't come from a, a pastor with a theological bee in his bonnet. It doesn't come from any kind of Christian or theist at all. Um, it actually comes, the harshest critic of, of this sort of approach to the providence of God comes from uh, an atheist philosopher And his name is Frederick Nietzsche. Uh, So we we made it to week four, guys. I want credit where credit's due. We made it to week four. For those of you who don't know, we have uh, have a Nietzsche counter here, and and we're trying to see how often I can go through, how many months I can go through the year without mentioning him. Um, We made it to week four. Um, So um, there there you have it. Uh, So this is Nietzsche complaining uh, uh, quite loudly about the abuse of this term of uh, divine providence. And he says this. Yet the most modest expenditure of intelligence, not to say decency, okay, it gets worse, so that's just the beginning. Yet the most modest expenditure of intelligence, not to say decency, would convince these interpreters of the complete childishness and unworthiness of such an abuse of divine dexterity. Even the slightest trace of piety, he's appealing to Christian piety here, even this slightest trace of piety in us ought to make us feel that a God who cures a head cold at the right moment or tells us to get into a coach just as a downpour is about to start is so absurd a God, he would have to be abolished, even if he existed. A God as a domestic servant, as a postman, as an almanac maker. At bottom, a word for the stupidest kind of accidental occurrence. Divine providence, as it is still believed in today by almost every third person in cultured Germany, would be a stronger objection to God than any other that could possibly be thought of. And in any case, it is an objection to the Germans. Now just to be clear, Nietzsche is not here attacking divine providence, notice he puts it in inverted commas there. Nietzsche is arguing that what people commonly refer to as divine providence is a misnomer for what he calls an abuse of divine dexterity. Uh, In other words, a a religious nomenclature to interpret what he says is the stupidest kind of accidental occurrence whereby the providential is reduced to the provincial in countless petty ways. Look what he's doing here. As I said, Nietzsche is appealing to Christian piety. He, he, he's appealing to intelligence, to decency, and then he, then he goes, look, please, have some Christian piety about you. As he pleads with cultured German Christians to stop talking about God in such irreverent and impious tones. In other words, Nietzsche's word, what he says here is not an objection to the providence of God, but as he says, it is an objection to the Germans or rather, an objection to German Christians who talk about the providence of God so irreverently. Now, this may be a little confusing. Why would this all-out atheist, the most thoroughgoing atheist there has ever been in terms of working it out philosophically, why would he be concerned about us getting this right? <laughs> why, would, why would Nietzsche, of all people, as an atheist, be so concerned about, please talk about the God's providence with a little bit of reverence, with a little bit of piety, why would he do that? What's it to him? What would he care? Well, look, here's his valid and, and I think, um, very legitimate concern, and, and it's this. If we satisfy ourselves with simply lampooning the popular version of God's providence, and by the way, you can apply this to any aspect of the Christian narrative. If we satisfy ourselves with simply lampooning the popular or folk version of the providence of God, and we never come to grips with what Paul is talking about in terms of the providence of God, then even with the best will in the world, we will only ever be able to shuffle sideways from folk religion into folk atheism, and and essentially he's saying that's essentially what most people who call themselves atheists today have done, and that is what's going on uh, with many people uh, in what's known these days as exvangelicalism, and and not all exvangelicals, but exvangelicals, a lot of them are, that's kind of essentially a shuffling sideways from folk religion into folk atheism, and so you may identify as an atheist, but he's saying you will labor the rest of your life under profoundly Christian assumptions, and he's saying, look, we can, we can do better than that. I mean, I know you don't come to church expecting to learn how to be a better atheist, but um, may it never be said that we, we don't like to help everyone here at Trinity <laughs> Heights. Um, we aim to please. So, look, he doesn't believe in divine providence himself because, of course, he's an atheist, but he understands that conceptually, conceptually, divine providence is deep at work, deep within. Western culture and large ways of Western thinking, and he sees it spreading around the world like a virus. So Providence for Nietzsche, of course, the kind of the way it's working deep within Western culture, is it? not this popular stuff, it's working at another level. Um, and it's, it's not for him, of course, this idea that, well, God told me to bring my umbrella this morning because he knew it was going to rain, even though my weather app said it wasn't going to rain, Right which is not a big achievement anyway. You've you've had that, right, where you look at your app and it says it's not raining, and you look outside and it's raining right just out the window. Um, This is not uh, providence as in God made the sea train come on time so I could get to my all-important meeting, right? Right? Because you know God can't make the sea train come on time. Um, I'm I'm joking. Uh, But but, um, this this is, he's saying, this is not God the domestic servant, not God the postman, not God the almanac maker, but rather the providence of God, the way the Apostle Paul describes it right here. And this is what he says For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And then we can jump down to verse 18 where it says, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And in verse 20 it says, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in, on earth or things in heaven. So this is, this is not the God who's pulling our strings like all his marionettes, the God who makes things happen to us. You know, when I fall down the stairs, right, I don't have to get up, dust myself off, and go, well, I'm glad that bit's over with, right? Rather, the providence of God is responsible for creating, sustaining, and moving everything towards his purpose. All creation, including humanity, are moving toward his goals. In other words, everything is going somewhere. And it is God who faithfully is sustaining everything and moving everything in that direction. There's no no competition between human agency and God's agency. He is a creator and sustainer of all things and is moving everything towards reconciliation. And Nietzsche says it's that idea, not the other one he mocks, but it's that idea that continues to function deep within Western culture, which most people remain committed to, profoundly committed to. We may say, well, well surely you know, our increasingly secularized society doesn't believe this stuff. So why does Nietzsche believe modern people are profoundly committed to this idea? Because, he says, we keep talking about progress. We keep talking about being on the right side of history. Isn't that a phrase you hear a lot these days? On the right side of history. Progress, the right side of history. We like to think of ourselves as being progressive. But Nietzsche's point is that if all of this is going nowhere and this world isn't ordered to anything, there's nothing that relates anything to anything else in any meaningful, significant way, then talk of societal progress, human progress, ethical progress can only be a Christian mistake. Uh, The atheist John Gray, I've I've quoted him here on on this particular issue a couple of times before, um, and he explains it and he, he's really, so John Gray is a popularizer of atheism and he is unique amongst, you know you, you heard Richard Dawkins and all those other guys he is unique amongst them because he actually understands what atheism is, is actually about and so he says this, he says humanists, atheistic humanists like to think they have a rational view of the world but their core belief in progress is a superstition among contemporary philosophers it's a matter of pride to be ignorant of theology right? ignorant of, of passages like this that we've just been looking at It's a matter of pride to be ignorant of theology. As a result, the Christian origins of secular humanism are rarely understood. The idea of progress is a secular version of the Christian belief in providence. He says again in another book, yet it is forgotten whenever people talk of the progress of mankind, they've put their faith in an abstraction that no one would think of taking seriously if it were not formed from cast off Christian hopes. The humanist belief in progress is only a secular version of this Christian faith. One of the questions that I ask um, from the front two or three times a year, um, and uh, yeah, I've asked this two two or three times a year from up front because I wanna make sure that everyone is sort of on the same page and understands the discussion that we're having here, is the simple question, what is progress? And when you ask that question, Um, You can always tell when someone gets it and when someone doesn't understand the question. So a friend of mine was sat in a bar with a couple of PhD students on either side, and she just asked them this question, what is progress? Now, one PhD student started listing off all these examples of of progress. You know, we've got women's rights and and, uh, gay rights, and we've got, you know, just going down the the list of society's progress. The other guy, he doesn't get it. He, he, when, when someone starts to respond to this question with a list of examples of ethical and societal progress, they don't understand the question. That's all that means. The other guy, on the other side, his response was, oh, shit. I mean, that's, that's what he said. He's like, oh, shit. And that's a guy who understands the question. I've asked this question from the front a couple of years ago. I, I, I said, what is progress? And, and, and someone else in the congregation said that this question she told me was burning a hole in her mind. She couldn't sleep at night's. Um, for for a long time just thinking about this question. And by the way, I I never mean to cause insomnia for anyone on a Sunday morning in the week coming ahead, Um, so apologies in advance if if that's what happens, but but she said she just just couldn't get it out of her head. She's a corporate lawyer, works downtown, and this question had implications, she said, for her profession, let alone for the rest of life and and the culture and world in the values in in which she and her friends live. Uh, and, And so that's a person. That's a person who understood this question. And he only needed to catch a glimpse of her own metaphysical commitments, which he never knew she had. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers and authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, so that in everything he might have the supremacy and reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things In heaven. I'll close with this. There's a challenge here for Christians to talk more reverentially about the providence of God. There's a challenge here for atheists to step out from God's shadow, as Nietzsche calls it. And I think there's a challenge here for Christians and skeptics to create a better conversation and for all of us to understand where hope comes from. Let us pray. Despite everything, Father, um, I think most of us are pretty uh, hopeful people. We can't live without hope. Father, we thank you for the Christian story and the hope that that has brought into our lives We pray that as a people we would be a people of hope who are immersed in this story where this story grips us in a way that just as, it would compel others to live lives of fruitfulness, grace, peace and love and sacrifice for each other. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.